We have uh, spent the last three weeks considering how God applies the salvation that He has accomplished in our lives to each individual believer. And um, while we do want to see how God works in us individually, I think um, the purpose for our salvation has much more to do with us individually. That is, it has to do with us as a body, as a corporate unit. And um, so, just to illustrate this, I'll uh, begin by asking you a question. You can help me out here. Why did you come to gather with this church in Royal Oak today? All right, to worship the Lord, Karen. All right, to learn more about His Word. Anything else? Okay, part of being a member of this church. Okay, so so see, with all those answers, you see that that coming to church is not just about us. Okay, there certainly is something that we ought to gain from it, or we should be worshiping God, we should be learning, but there's something uh, more to it. There's a corporate aspect of our gathering that we come as members, as as joined a joined group, uh, people who are committed to one another to help build each other up, to worship together. Really, that's what God has designed the church to do. Not just to, you know, hey, I'll save all you people and then you all in your own individual homes, you kind of worship God together. I mean, God could have designed it that way, could He not? But He didn't. He designed us to come together as a group and to, to worship Him together. And so, um, the Christian life is more than just personal discipleship. And so we need to have a right understanding of the church um, in order to um, to make sure that we are in in line with how God wants us to look at these things. So there are lots of issues that we could address when it comes to understanding what the church is and what it's all about. Like, um, you know, should infants be baptized? Should we allow women to be pastors? Does the bread and the cup and the Lord's Supper become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ? We could answer all those questions, and we'll actually address some of those next week. But but really, the way that we want to start this week is to look more at the nature of the church, kind of more fundamental questions like, what is the nature of the church? What are God's intentions for the church? Um, what are the attributes of a healthy church? And so on. All right, so that's where we're going today. Let me begin with a word of prayer and we'll ask God's help as we do that. Father, we need You every hour and we need You this hour. So we ask for Your help as we look into Your Word and as we consider these theological truths about the church. We thank You for the church that You have bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for our Savior who loves us so much and we pray that You'd help us to live for Him who died for us. We pray in His name. Amen. All right, well, let's start with a, a definition of the church. And the church can be de- defined as all true believers in Jesus Christ from the time of Pentecost to the time of the rapture. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, and then the rapture, Revelation, there, uh, right after Revelation 5. All true believers in Jesus Christ between Pentecost and the rapture. Um, the church is is a community of true believers in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy. 
Okay, so the church is referring to this this corporate body. This uh, this is in in that context, he's actually talking about more than just a local church, but certainly he's not talking less than that. We are included in those for whom Christ died. Um, but he's talking about more than that. All of these people from the time of Pentecost to the rapture. And so in that generic way, we could say that that is the church. All right. Next thing we want to see is um, that the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is pretty obvious when we look at several of the epistles, um, the letters that are written by the the apostles primarily, um, that, it, that the church is referred to as the church of what? The church of Christ or the church of Jesus Christ or the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's, it's Christ's church. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 and I'll show you that He also um, takes possession of this church, of, of His church. Matthew 16. Of course, a familiar um, passage here where Peter and Jesus are talking. I would say Peter is probably speaking on behalf of the rest of the, the disciples here. And, of course, uh, Jesus says, who do, who do people say that I am? And so on. And, and um, Peter says, you are the Christ in verse 16. And then uh, verse 18. Would someone read verse 18 for us? And notice what Jesus calls the church here. All right, so what does he say there? I will build what? I will build my church. Okay, my church. And in fact, he he so identifies himself with the church that as I've pointed out in in, in other uh in other venues um in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is on the road to of Damascus on his way to Syria there to persecute some Christians, to bring them back to prison and so on to await their execution. Um Christ stops him and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting believers? No, that's not what he says. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? No, why are you persecuting what? Me. So he so identifies himself with the church that they are his. They belong to him. That when a person like Paul persecutes people in the church, they actually are persecuting Christ. And so, uh, Acts twenty twenty eight, God purchased her with Christ's blood. Um, Christ calls it my church. Here's a um, quotation from the dictionary, New Testament, uh, the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. It says, "The church is the body of Christ on earth, and He is the head. The, ter- the church takes its alignment from Jesus as a building takes its alignment from the cornerstone." The life of the church is maintained by its vital union with Him and it exists only insofar as it is in Him. The person and work of Jesus Christ then are at the heart of the New Testament view of the church. That is, there is no church apart from Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, what kind of an assembly would we be if Jesus Christ did not die for us? if Jesus Christ did not save us individually, if He did not call us to do something. All right? So this is a church that belongs to Christ. It belongs to Christ. And so, um, 
if that's the case, then we certainly ought to to see what Christ wants in His church. And we don't just go about doing church the way we want to do it. It's Christ's church, so we need to find out what He wants in a church. All right, the next thing we want to, to, to do in order to see the nature of the church would be helpful to think about some of the metaphors, the pictures, the analogies that are used in Scripture to describe the church. And you can probably think of several of these. We'll go through three. All right? And um, so let's, uh, let's, look at, let, let's look at these as Paul primarily, Jesus uses some of these as well. Family images. First, family images. Okay? When we talk about our Father, He is our Heavenly Father. Right? When Jesus prays in Matthew chapter 6, I believe it is, He says, Our Father who art in heaven, or another way to say that would be our Heavenly Father. And we often begin our prayers that way, and that's completely appropriate. Um, Paul regards the, the, the family unit of the church, or the church as a family unit, right? He says that you should treat older men, older men in the church as fathers and younger men as, and the younger men as brothers and, and, and so on. So we have this familial, uh, relationship. And Jesus calls his followers his brothers and sisters. And Paul does the same thing, right? When he's writing in his letters, in his epistles, he often says, uh, brethren or brothers and sisters is the idea there. That, that we are in a relationship, a, a strong, familiar relationship. And of course, you know what this means. That, that um, in your family, you have a stronger connection than you do with people outside of your family, generally speaking. Okay? And that's the idea. That's what it should be like with the church. That you should have a stronger connection, a stronger relationship with people in this body than you do outside of this body, okay, believers or unbelievers. That there is a special relationship. And of course, there's another family image that's given, and that is the bride of Christ, that, that the church is called the bride of Christ. That, that really, marriage was designed not for us, really. It was really designed to be a picture to help us to see how much Christ loves the church, Okay? And so, this is how uh, men ought to love their wives. They ought to love their wives like Christ loved the church. There, there is a special relationship there, a relationship of purity, commitment, ongoing covenant. Alright, so family images. And then, building images. Okay, that the church is a building. Or, it's also referred to as a temple. Um, that... Uh, that you are the temple of the living God, 1 Corinthians talks about. That, that in you, okay, in you as a corporate body, that's where God resides. Okay, we, we, we talked about this on Wednesday night when we looked at Leviticus 9 with Pastor Tim Davis and, and he was talking about that God wants to come and meet with His people. He wants to come and be with His people, which is an amazing thing since we are sinners. And so in the Old Testament... He had to overcome their sin, right? He can't just come and meet with sinners. He has to overcome their sin. And so He would come through a priest. He would come into the temple. And now in the New Testament, the Scriptures beautifully portray the church as the temple of the living God. The, the believers. And so now the place where God's glory comes and we get to see God okay, in a special way, His special presence is in the church. When we gather together, we are able to enjoy God's presence. 
And um, so this means that that um, we are like if if you know Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles are the foundation, right? Then then we are kind of like the building blocks that hold it all together. And if we're an individual Christian, but we're not really connected to that building in any way, that is as part of a church, then we're like a block that's set aside and 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 the building's not complete really without us. We're not complete. We're not doing what we're supposed to do. We're just a brick laying there on the side. And that's why in the scriptures there is a demand to be a member of a local church, to be a part of a vital part of that church. And that also tells us that there is no segregation as far as our our gender or our ethnicity, anything like that. It doesn't matter what kind of a brick you are in those terms, right? We're all part of of this building that God that Christ has has um, bought with His blood. And then the final in, image that we'll look at here is the body, right? First Corinthians twelve that we are the body of Christ, Christ being the head, we are the body. And what what kind of body would we be if we were all the same body part? I mean, it would be very, very uh, helpful to be that way. And so we all have different roles, but but we're all still important. In fact, uh, without us fulfilling our roles, the whole body hurts. And so we want to be actively pursuing um, uh, this this corporate relationship in the church. So the body of Christ. Um, here's how uh, theologian Wayne Grudem puts it. He says, the wide range of metaphors used for the church, these pictures we just looked at, should remind us not to focus exclusively on any one as if one's better than the other. Each of the metaphors used for the church should help us to appreciate more of the richness of the privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into the church. His point there is, you know, he, we, God could have given us just one image to show us what the church is like. But instead, He uses multiple images to try to help us to see all the facets of its beauty. It's like God. God can't be described with one name, right? He has to have all of these names that describe Him because He can't really be be, be uh, uh, confined to just one name. And I think the church is very similar in that way, that God's church is such a beautiful picture that He's He's trying to display to the world His glory through it that um, that we shouldn't just focus on one, but we should see all the different beauty, beautiful facets of, of all the metaphors there. Alright, so the the uh, metaphors for the church are many and uh, they help to, to point us to um, the great relationship that we have with God and Christ and also with each other. Any questions on what we've talked about so far? Or any comments? Alright, let's look at um, how the church is described in the Scriptures and we'll see kind of uh, two different ways in these next uh, couple um, these next couple categories. Okay, first the church visible and invisible. Okay, the church visible and invisible. God has designed the church to display His glory. And so, what does this look like? Are um, are all of the members of Christ's church? On one role, are 
Okay, remember how we described the, the church? That is, all believers from Pentecost to rapture. So, are all of those members, people from Pentecost to the rapture that are saved, are all those on one church membership role? Okay, in a sense, you know, yeah, the universal church, but, but there's not really, I mean, physically, we don't have that, right? Okay, so, so that's the invisible church, but, but, but what the Scriptures talk about is, is being on a visible church membership role. Okay, like, for example, in Acts chapter 2, those who were saved and baptized were what? In Acts 2, added to the church. Okay, and then you have um, the fact that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where you have the sinning brother, the immoral man, who was sleeping with his father's wife, something that wouldn't even be done about, wouldn't even be talked about among the pagans. Okay, Paul says you need to remove him from your midst. Okay, what he's talking about there is the fact that you would be able to remove him. First of all, suggests that he was a part of you, and second of all, suggests that if you have the authority to do that sort of thing, then you know who's in and who's out. That there are lines of distinction between who are the members and who are not. Same thing is true with the widows when the widows are to be cared for and so on. Um, the fact that there are ladies who can be put onto that list suggests that there has to be some sort of church membership. And so this is the pattern that's given in the church. That, there, that while uh, our standing before God does not determine whether we're a member or not, okay? that is, a person can be saved and not a member of a church, but all true believers should be members of a church. Okay, do you understand the difference? A person can be saved, but not a member of a church, but all true believers should be members of a church. And, uh, and that's the pattern that's given in the Scripture. So we can be a part of the invisible church, but the visible expression of that, the outward visible expression of our invisible relationship with, with Christ, that is, that we're part of His body, is that we're part of a local body. Okay? We can't be a part of a universal body. That is, we don't meet with you know, the pastor of the universal church, for example, right? There is no such thing. So, so we have to be part of a local body. That's the way the Scriptures lay it out. And, um, and so, our job then as a church is to... The invisible church is the church as God sees it. Okay, did you get that? I shouldn't have to explain that one. All right. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. And then, to remove that distraction, I actually wrote it in this time. All right. And then the visible church is the church as it appears to Christians and to the world. All right. So the invisible church is the church as God sees it. He knows all who will come to Him from Pentecost to the rapture. We don't. Um, and the visible church has to make a line of distinction about who they think is in here. That is, if a person comes to join in membership at Ambassador Baptist Church in Royal Oak, we have to make a determination based on their profession of faith whether they're a part of this. Because ideally, and this is what our church is working towards, is that our church membership would match the names that are in this church membership. Now, not all of them, but the ones... Okay, In other words, we should have no one in our church membership who's not in here. 
You see what I'm saying? Okay. Because the church, the local church, is a visible expression of what the invisible universal church is. We should be that. We, we should be that, um, be able to, to uh, make those types of distinctions. So we work hard here to try to determine who those types of people are. Now, obviously, we can't see, remember, this is as God sees it, we can't see people's hearts. We can only go based on what they tell us, right? Based on um, their understanding of the gospel, their response to certain questions. Um, but, but we ultimately seek to try to make sure that these people are our believers. Um, Paul uh, addresses many of his letters to the visible church as we have defined it. Okay, that is, as the, the Christians in the world see it, that he says, to the church of God which is at Corinth, or to the church that meets in Philemon's home, and so on. And, um, of course, the reason that we want to make sure that our church is made up of Christians and Christians only is because the alternative is that we will have false professions of faith or we will have false teachers within our midst and we can't have that. That will actually cause division in the church. It will actually lead people astray. And um, so one of the things that we strive to do is to have a membership that's made up only of Christians. So that's what we call regenerate church membership. And this is a hallmark of of the Baptist denomination, if you want to call it that, the Baptist faith, that we have regenerate church membership, or at least we seek to have regenerate church membership. That is, saved church membership. If you went through our membership class, I think most of you have gone through that in this class. Even if you didn't do it when you first joined, you have done it since since I've been here, one of the classes that we started with uh, back in uh, September of 2009. And uh, when we went through what it means to be a Baptist, one of the one of the acronyms there for Baptist, or the acronym for Baptist, the, the bottom S was saved church membership. And uh, we talked about that time that that we have to make sure that our membership is made up of Christians, and the reason for that is that it it allows for purity, or it maintains the purity that is in the church. When you have unbelievers that are in the midst, then there's going to be problems. Okay, there are going to be um, there's going to be division and so on. So we have to to make sure that we're we're being careful about who we let in. And so what we do at our church is we try to take each of we don't try we do we take all of our candidates for membership through a process. One is they have to take a six week membership class. That is, they have to learn about what our church believes because uh, they're going to commit to these same beliefs and they have to see what our church. Uh, believes with regard to how we practice these things because they're going to have to be practicing them too. There's a commitment here. There's a, a covenant that's being made between the the prospective member and the church. And the church is also committing to the person that I'm going to take you in, I'm going to hold you accountable, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to, to encourage you, and so on. Following the six-week class, uh, the prospective member has to to meet with myself and the deacons and tell us about how they came to Christ and 
and how they were baptized because those are the only way, that's the only way we can take a person into membership if they've been saved and baptized and scripturally baptized. And uh, in doing so, we, we seek to maintain a regenerate church membership. Now, of course, we can be deceived, right? And uh, obviously, following that, we take that person before the church and ask you to vote on them. Um, but, but we as a church can be deceived, can't we? There are people who could come in and maybe have all the right words to say and be able to make all the right responses to the questions that we have, but but they could still be an unbeliever, right? Well, the church, uh, Christ set up the church. He designed it so that that could be taken care of as well. And that's through a process that we'll, we'll probably get through here um, in the next couple weeks, but the, it's called church discipline. And as we remove somebody from our midst, who is living like an unbeliever. That is, they're living in unrepentant sin. If a person is approached about their sin, we're all sinners, right? We're not going to get to a place of perfection. But if a person is approached about their sin, okay, you see some sin in my life that I have that I haven't repented of. You come and you tell me about it. And if my response is one of, well, I, I, I don't want to change. I'm not going to, to listen to that. I'm not going to to change, I'm going to keep on doing that because I like to do that. Okay, then you would have a responsibility to remove me from the church membership as I would be able, I would have the same responsibility to you. And really, the responsibility is to Christ and His body that I'm not doing, we should, I should say all of us, we're not doing each other any favors by letting people continue in their unrepentant sin. There are several reasons for that. Um, I'll just mention a couple. One is, we deceive them about their own relationship with God. Okay, Or we don't deceive them, but we allow them to think wrongly about their own relationship to God. I can live like an unbeliever, be a member of this church, and I'm okay before God. They haven't said anything to me about it. They haven't done anything about it. So it's okay. okay. Secondly, we condone their sin to other people in our church. They live like an unbeliever. We're not doing anything about it. And and uh, you know what? That means that it's okay if you live like them too. Thirdly, it tells the lost world that we don't really care about people's sin. We don't care whether a person lives like an unbeliever or not. That they could go out into the world, okay? A person who is living like an unbeliever, member of our church, they go out into the world and the world sees them and says, they're, they're not any different from from me. They do the same things on the weekends that I do. The only thing is, they spend a couple hours in church. That's it. And so I must be okay before God because they're a member of Ambassador Baptist Church, right? And that's obviously very dangerous. Um, to, it's dangerous for the name of Christ. We, we harm the reputation of, of Jesus Christ when we do that. And so we want to make sure that our members are regenerate. And so there's a way to protect that, and I've said it in this way before, that we guard the front door of the church and we open up the back door. Okay? And when I say that, I mean we guard the front door of the church membership. Okay? We allow unbelievers to come and, and sit in our worship services, although unbelievers can't worship, okay, technically, because they're not in a right relationship with God. But, but when I'm talking about guarding the front door of our church, we don't allow unbelievers to come in to our church membership. And then we open up the back door so that when people start living like unbelievers, that is, they're not repenting of their sin, 
then we, we remove them from the church. Okay, that's not an easy thing to talk about. It's not an easy thing to do. But in order to... Remember, who, who does the church belong to? It belongs to Christ. So if Christ is concerned about the purity of His church, then we will be as well. We should be as well. Ken? No, not necessarily. Um, no, I, I I can't think of a specific situation where we say you can't, you just can't come back to our service. But for one, they would not be able to participate in the Lord's Supper. We couldn't allow them to join in on this this um, corporate action. And um, and then uh, I mean that's the main benefit that you have as a church member. You're able to share in the the memorial of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But part of that memorial is not just memorializing what Christ did, but it's also reminding us of the the corporate unity that we have as a body. That we're saying this group, you know, is, is made up of believers and we're committing ourselves to to um, to Christ and uh, and we do this again by reminding ourselves of his death. So, yeah. Any other uh, questions or thoughts? Bill. Right, the four groups you're talking about, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah, but but amazingly, despite the fact that they are young, I mean, Paul still holds them to the high standard of purity because this is Christ's church. And um, so... Let me just say one other thing about regenerate church membership before we move on. That is, part of what the church does is is that the church gives confirmation of a person's salvation. Okay. Now you need to think about this with me for a second before you 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 know just walk out the door or jump off the deep end here. Okay. You don't. Again, a person can be saved apart from the local church. That is, they can be saved and not be a member of the local church. But in this dispensation. God has given the binding and the loosing, right? Matthew chapter 16. Are you still in Matthew 16? Or Yeah, why don't you look down to um, verse 18. I will build my church. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, there's a lot I, I would have to explain here in order to show you that I think this applies to more than just Peter. Uh, I think that Peter was speaking on behalf of the other apostles here uh, personally, and so I think that he was giving the power to bind and loose on earth. And what what Jesus was saying here is, what you're going to be doing with the church, the binding and loosing, the 
letting members into the local body and removing them from it should match what's going on in heaven. And so our job as a church is is in some sense to confirm a person's salvation. So here's what church discipline does. We've at some point, because they've joined the church, we've confirmed, in a sense, their salvation. We said, yes, we agree that based on your visible you know, expression of faith, we believe that you are a Christian. But then for church discipline, what that means is now we have looked at your life and we've seen that you're not repenting of your sin. And that's the key. You have to, re- you have to be repenting of your sin. If you're not, um, then that shows that you're like an unbeliever. And so what we're saying when we remove a person from the church, and get this point, this is very important, when we remove a person from the church through church discipline, we're not saying that they're not a Christian. We're just saying we can't give evidence that you are. We can't confirm it anymore. We could confirm it at one time when you were showing signs of life, but at this point we can't confirm. So, for example, if a person stops coming to church altogether, okay, we don't see them for months and months and maybe even years. It's not that we're saying you're not a Christian. You can't be a part of our church. That may be the case. But what we are saying is we can't confirm your salvation because we're not watching how you live. And that's part of what the church does. It brings about this accountability that we all need, including myself. We all need accountability where we are watching out for for people to see if, you know what, I may have been deceived, I may have fallen. Falling into false doctrine or fallen into sinful living. Mark. Right, no, they would not be. Thank you. Yeah, so there's, I mean, again, God knows all the people are in here, but for us, we're doing this imperfectly. So that's a good point that Mark brings up. There's not, God's not disciplining people out of heaven. This is, this is, has to be done because we are fallen people. We can't know who's in and who's out perfectly, right? We do our best based on what they tell us and, and how they're living at the time. But we can't know. And so because we're fallen, we can't know. Sometimes it just takes time to see. And and then that sin when that sin is exposed and they don't respond. Now let me let me just explain. If a person's sin is exposed, okay, they've they've sinned against God, maybe against a specific brother or against the whole church, and we go to them and they respond and they say, Wow, I didn't recognize that before. I I I need to turn from that and they're working hard to return from it. And obviously, the the real proof is that they actually do turn from it. Then at that point, they've repented of it. So that's what believers do, right? And so we don't discipline them out of the church. There's a process that's called restoration that we try to bring them back in. But ultimately, the goal is not to, okay, let's get them out of here. Make sure just the, the people who are all just outwardly looking good. We want all those people in our church. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for people who are genuinely uh, a part of this invisible church and we see that through their their lives. Jonathan? Right. Part of the testimony of our church um, depends on us making sure that we have a healthy and um, a regenerate church membership. All right, well, I need to move. 
um, here to get done with these last couple sections. The church local and universal. Okay, local and universal, very similar to what we were just talking about. But but when Paul talks about the church, sometimes he talks about it as to the church in a large area. Okay, like when we're going through Galatians, he's talking about the church to the Galatians. It's actually several different churches in Galatia, but he's, he he refers to it in the singular. And um, or in Acts nine thirty one, then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Um, enjoyed a time of peace, and so on. Um, so you have the church referred to as a, a larger universal body. Okay, That would be the invisible church. And then you also have a local body like what we would call Ambassador Baptist Church in Royal Oak. So um, here's John Hammett. He writes a, a great book on, on the church and protecting its purity. He says the local church is not regarded here as merely a part of a larger body of Christ, but as the body of Christ in that place. So, as a local church, Ambassador Baptist Church, we are the body of Christ in that place. That's how the New Testament describes it. Not as, okay, the body of Christ, all believers, and then we're just one small part of it. There is a sense in which that's true, but we're actually the body of Christ in this place. And this is another support for proper understanding of the autonomy or the independence of the local church, that no local church should be isolated Okay, as if we're the only ones left. We're the remnant. We're the only true believers left. That's not how it should be. We can partner with other churches. But no local church needs a larger body to complete it or enable it to function. It is the body of Christ possessing full church status, ecclesial status. All right. So, so there's a distinction between local and universal. When you read through the scriptures, just try to notice that what, what which one the the scripture writers are referring to. And just to give you a hint, about 85% of them are referring to the local church, maybe 90%. Okay, very few times to talk about the the universal church, and that's because remember the letters are written to individual local churches. And that's what we are, and so that's very helpful for us as well. Think about Revelation 2 and 3 in that regard. Alright. Um, so, implications of this. Because the church is local, we should be part of it. And because the church is universal, we should rec- recognize that we're not alone. Because the church is local, we should be part of this local church or a local church, Bible-believing God-centered local church. And because it's universal, okay, don't don't talk about your church as the remnant. We're the only ones left. No one else is doing church like no one else is worshiping as good as we are and that sort of thing. There's lots of other worship going on in other places, even in our area. And so that means we can partner with other churches for the sake of the gospel. And this is a good thing because we can't fully support one missionary on our own and so we need to partner with other people who are of like mind and uh, who can help support these missionaries and send them out for the sake of the name. Even local, um, even local pursuits of the gospel are good to partner. It's good to partner with other churches to do these sorts of things. We don't have to pretend like, like we're, we're alone here. All right, the next, the church militant and triumphant. When you hear this in in um, writings about the church, not necessarily those words are used in the New Testament, but 
but um, when you read any books on the the church, you'll you'll sometimes hear these phrases. What they're talking about, the militant, is that the church is still fighting. That's the church that's here on the earth, still fighting against the struggle of sin and Satan and error and and false teaching and so on. That's the church militant. Okay, we got what's our job? Ephesians six. Okay, it's to stand firm. Okay, that having done all, that we will stand firm. So we put on all this weapon or this armor that protects us. We are militant in that way. Um, now, when I say militant, I'm not talking about we need to, you know, take up the, a real sword and start getting people to to get saved. Obviously, a person can't be coerced into salvation. They can't be forced into doing it. Like in some other religions, you can, right? Um, like a Muslim uh, faith or, or something like that. You can be coerced, but not in the Christian faith. So that's not what I'm talking about when I say militant. I'm talking about standing up for the faith, for the truth. And then triumphant has to do with um, those who are in heaven and where they've already realized the victory. Okay, They haven't gotten the final victory. They haven't been resurrected. Their bodies haven't been resurrected. But they are enjoying the presence of Christ forevermore. And um, so those are the triumphant uh, believers, the triumphant church. All right, let me give you two attributes. Uh, I think uh, actually three attributes of the church, and I'll go through these quickly. First, the church is one, or the church is united. Ephesians 4 4 says that there is one body with many members, one body, that there is a unity that is required there. Christ prayed in John 17. I love this prayer where he prays to his Father about other believers, and he says, I pray that they may be one as what? As you and I are one, right? You, Father, and I are one. So. The unity that Christ is looking for in His church, in this church, is what kind of unity? The unity that there is in the Godhead between God and the Father. Is there ever any division there where they're like, you know, maybe we should do things a different way? No, it's it's a perfect unity, a perfect recognition of roles there. The, the, the Son recognizes that He must submit Himself to the Father and so on. And that's the type of unity Christ wants to see in this church. And so division should not be, it should be foreign to the church. It should not be a part of it. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 3. Secondly, the church is holy. It should be holy. Okay, you should be united. It should be holy. Phil Riken says that with the exception of the prison system, the church is the only institution for bad people. Um, it's it's a place where where people come who recognize that they have sinful hearts and that they need to be changed. And so that's what he's talking about when he says an institution. It's a help. It's a correction facility in a sense. And um, and this happens as we are purified through the Word and through speaking the truth to one another in in love. So the church should be holy. And thirdly, the church is, we could call this apostolic. And what I mean by that is not that we have apostolic succession, but that it's built on the foundation of the apostles. That the apostles' writings 
Okay, the, the teachings of the apostles, that's what First, Tim, First Timothy 4, I believe, says, you know, that we're built on the, the apostles' teaching. Acts 2 uses that same phrase. All right, so we're united, we're holy, and we're built on, we could say, the Scriptures. All right, the marks of the church, or we could say marks of a healthy church. Um, let me just give you two. Two marks of the healthy church. How do we distinguish between churches of Christ and false churches? And what the reformers suggested, um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, suggested there are two marks of a healthy church primarily. Number one, the right preaching of the Word. Okay, If we are a church that is built on the apostles' teaching, then that means we need to be built on the apostles' teaching. We need to have at the center of what we do the right preaching of the Word. So that's a responsibility for me as the pastor, but that's a responsibility of you as the congregation. Why? Because the responsibility to uphold sound doctrine lies with the church as a whole. When Paul goes after believers in churches and went about false teachers. Think about Revelation 2 and 3. He's not talking to the pastor specifically. Hey, you, pastor, why are you letting all these Nicolaitans and so on into your, into your midst and allowing these people who, who uh, follow after Jezebel, right? No, he's talking to the whole church and to our church. Let, let, the Spirit, um, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, at the center of what we do has to be a right preaching of the Word, which is dependent upon me and dependent upon you. And then secondly, a right administration of the ordinances. This is what I was talking about earlier. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the, the normal entrance for a person into the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? When you get water baptized, that is your, your ticket really into church membership. And so we need to make sure that we're baptizing genuine believers, right? And then the Lord's Supper, make sure that we're fencing the table. Make sure we're allowing only those who have a genuine profession of faith in Jesus Christ and who are living as such. Um, and uh, now, if we want to answer this question, okay, how do we distinguish then? If the, the churches of Christ have a right preaching and a right administration of the ordinances, how do we determine then who's true and who's false? Well, we could look at it like a, uh, a continuum. Okay, we put on a line here. False churches over here. And true churches, we could call it over here. Okay, these are the ones who have a right preaching of the church and a right administration of the ordinances. These are the ones who do not at all. And obviously, in the middle, you have all sorts of different levels of churches, right? And our goal is to work our way all the way over here. So we're perfectly, I mean, not perfectly, but as best as humanly possible, we are rightly preaching the Word and rightly administering the ordinances. But we recognize that we're not going to be there perfectly and that there are lots of churches that, you know what, we should not participate with. And there are some churches who are you know what? They may have a few differences with us, but but they're over here. Okay, so those are the main two um, distinctions, main two marks we could say of a healthy church. All right, any questions, or comments?
Mark. In what way? Right. Right, exactly, yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying on the continuum idea, right? So you're saying like some of those churches, right, that's a great example. If we wanted to put the Revelation 2 and 3 churches here, the seven churches, we could say, well, I know your deeds, I know you do this well, but you've, you've, you've allowed this teaching in or whatever. Or, you know, I know you've you held to this sound doctrine, but, you know, you've lost your first love. And so there's, yeah, there's levels here. Some of the churches, two of them, I think Smyrna and one other one, don't have any negative remarks against them, um, but all of them, uh, all of them, yeah, would fall on this continuum here. And our goal is to be over here, where we are rightly preaching the word and rightly administering the ordinances. Right. Yeah. Right. Some some uh, if you want to think about it like the parable of the soils, some of them take time to see whether or not they have genuine fruit. Like like I would say like a a Demas uh, who Paul condemned basically at some point. I mean, he he probably saw some signs of life at some point and said, you know what, this looks like a genuine believer, but then had to remove him from the church. And maybe this guy, this immoral guy who was at in 1 Corinthians 5 was the same way. Maybe he was a part of the original church that Paul established. A profession of faith was made under Paul's preaching and he had all the right questions down at that time, but then as you know, obviously he didn't take root into the true water of life like some of these plants do, and so they get choked out by the cares of this world, and that's when you have to make a choice. Okay, is this person a genuine believer, or are they living like a genuine believer? So, right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Paul. Right. Yeah, I'm saying there's no physical ro- roster that we can see. As that was my point, but yeah, you're right. Right. Yep. When contain all of the names of those who are. I mean, you can't enter the the um, to heaven unless you have your name written in the book of life. Right. Yeah, Jonathan. What Bill was pointing out. Morning.
Right. Why do you believe this thing that you believe? Why do you follow this person? Why do you believe these things? Yep. Yeah, and so that that's something we need to address the best we can, um, you know, when we sit down with these people, go through class together with them. So all right. Thank you for your uh, attention and for input. Appreciate that very much. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the beauty of the local church and we pray that you'd help us to love it like Christ loves it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you today? Good. Good. Um, real quick. Yeah. Um, I was wondering next week uh, if you could go into like the invisible and the local and the invisible church. Mm-hmm. Because I run into people and a lot of people are coming to go this way. Since we are to be a part of the local church, we covered it under that. Then it would be wrong, say, for Jonathan and I to go and break off into and build our own church. A lot of people are doing it, and they seem to have the basis for it. But based on what we, what you taught us today, there is yeah. no basis for it. And well, I don't really know how to explain it to them. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are some legitimate cases where you could make uh, for a person starting a church. I mean, obviously, if we if we never did, then uh, 